You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher with me, Dr Mick Pope. This episode is entitled Philip Goff's Panpsychism climate change and theism. I've been meaning to read this book for a while. I found it very accessible and I can highly recommend it to anyone interested in the problem of consciousness. What goes on behind your eyeballs? I first came across the idea reading Thomas Nagel's Mind and Cosmos, why the materialistic and neo-Darwinian conception of nature is almost certainly false. And that's quite a subtitle. And is essentially he puts forward panpsychism. I don't recall him using the word, but you can you get the picture that he talks about why he thinks materialism, and in particular a neo-Darwinian conception of nature, doesn't get the idea of consciousness. I was a bit confused at the time that Nagel could believe that materialism was wrong, but that he wasn't a theist. I found that puzzling. It's clear to me now, of course, reading Goff's book, uh, that it's possible to uh, reject materialism and still be uh, an agnostic or an atheist. But I still think that panpsychism and theism are compatible. Not that theism is really the subject of, of this book per se, although he does touch on it, as we'll see. Other than Goff rejects dualism of, of both forms. I'll draw on some of my own thoughts towards the end and at various points. However, he does discuss the climate crisis and we will get to that uh, towards the end. One of the things you'd be most aware of, of course, is yourself. Going to sleep at night, you give uh, that up. But in the morning, there it is again, you. You are consciously aware of yourself. Unless, of course, you are a materialist, uh, then you, of course, is an illusion. Or is it a ghost in the machine, as dualists believe? Goff offers panpsychism as a third alternative, and I find it quite compelling. So let's get right in and consider the issues. Uh, the first chapter is a case of pin the tail of blame on the Galilean donkey. Consciousness is what makes the universe an interesting place to be because it makes our thoughts, pleasures and emotions possible. René Descartes' dictum, cogito ergo sum, or I think therefore I am, reminds us that the one thing we can be sure of is that we think. And just as an aside, with the new Matrix movie coming out in a short while, I recommend you go read, read Descartes, uh, Descartes' Discourse on Method and then go watch the first movie. When I did that, it, it actually blew my mind. And so consciousness seems so fundamental, but Goff asserts that it is just a matter, uh, that if it is just a matter of neuroscience, um, then that field doesn't given as much of an explanation. It, it claims a lot, but it's fallen flat. He rightly shows, in my view, the vacuity of language, 
that wants to replace, and indeed as neurophilosopher Patricia Churchland does, ideas like hope, desire and love with talk about electrochemical processes in the brain. And he kind of jokingly wonders what her courting days would have been like. Goff observes that we would never accept being told our consciousness is an illusion. And it's certainly something that I reject and I would imagine that most uh, Christians and, and general theists would also. The point of what follows in this book is to show that consciousness is in fact not an illusion. Goff blames Galileo for the problem we are having with explaining consciousness because he, uh, Galileo described a book of the universe as being written in mathematical language. Now I have a lot of sympathy for that and there's uh, a paper written some time ago, and I can't remember the person's name, frustrating, but somebody who was fairly fundamental in the origins or the development of quantum mechanics talks about the unreasonably um, effective nature, the inexplicable uh, effective nature of mathematics, that the fact that maths corresponds so amazingly well to the world that we see around us. But in doing this, Galileo stripped the world of its sensory qualities. And so Goff talks about, for example, a lemon. The yellowness of the lemon is not part of the lemon, but resides in the soul or our consciousness. Uh, it's not an intrinsic quantity of the lemon. So to return to an old cliche, the tree that falls in the forest without being heard really does not make a sound because the sound only exists inside the soul of the consciousness. The world is then divided into physical objects and souls, which of course is where René Descartes comes in, if you've read his Discourse of Method with the res extensor and the res cogitans. The soul or conscious mind is placed by Galileo outside of the domain of inquiry of natural philosophy or science, as we now call it. See, consciousness is qualitative, whereas Galileo set up science as mathematical and therefore quantitative. Now, of course, this is the way in which science has made such great um, strides forward in one sense, um, because the other thing, and, and this is just a side note that I'm making, is that it also focused very much on reductionism, on providing, and I don't mean this in, in, uh, in a literal sense, it provided simple solutions to simple problems. And some of the solutions aren't in fact really simple and some of the problems aren't really simple. But the world, as I've said, said in the last program, is nonlinear and it's complex and it's interrelated. And one of the things that science has done and is currently trying to undo is, is focus on these very simple problems uh, and smooth over the complexity. Anyway, now this leaves Goff with three options. There's naturalistic dualism, there's materialism and there's panpsychism, which is the main theme of the book. Now, the theist, of course, would add supernaturalistic dualism. And we usually talk about the soul. Of course, Goff doesn't go there. And I tend not to these days. Why? Well, I think the Bible is sufficiently vague on the afterlife to not insist upon it. The idea of Sheol or the grave in the Hebrew Bible is so vague. Uh, talking about the life of the shades or the Rephaim which seem insubstantial and possibly simply a metaphor for the dead. The New Testament idea of the resurrection is consistent with panpsychism, as is the rejection of any Greek idea of the immortality of the soul as an inherent property of the soul. 
uh, that's foreign to Hebrew thought. And if you reflect upon that, that causes all sorts of problem with um, conscious eternal um, or eternal conscious suffering, for example. Anyway, dualism, as Goff describes it, is a bit like uh, a drone and its pilot. I find drones incredibly irritating things. It's interesting when I went to Tokyo all too long ago now, uh, there are signs everywhere saying don't fly your drones. But you get the idea. There's a pilot with a radio control box and maybe you'll have a, a screen as well and a drone. You are a ghost in a machine directing the body about it, just as the pilot uh, directs the drone. It solves the problem of neuroscience not delivering and it's a natural way of thinking about ourselves. And it's certainly what you see a lot of in popular culture. So I don't know if you remember the TV series Herman's Head, which had all these different characters. It's like a sitcom located behind someone's eyes. Uh, there is a problem, uh, however, and I actually remember this vaguely from when I did first year philosophy in the third year of my science course, which is about 30 years ago, and it's the problem of interaction. How does the mind influence the brain and body? Of course, David Hume called the whole uh, idea of causation into question, which I should note is a trick more sophisticated climate change deniers can turn to. Uh, and dualism can be on the nose, uh, it seems to me, for two reasons. Um, the first is falling into Galileo's er error, and the other is contempt for religion. And, and Goff quotes someone as being, uh, that religion is defined as being asked to, quote, believe without evidence. Now, this, of course, is not to get a narrow and jaundiced view, which leaves out history and, and um, whether or not theism is... Uh, an accurate quote-unquote theory to describe the universe and Goff himself um, in tweets I've seen raises the problem of evil. That's fair enough. Um, however, a naturalistic dualist proposes laws that can be studied with science, what they call psychophysical laws. And this employs the same methodology as materialism. One such method of approaching consciousness is the Integrated Information Theory, or ITT which measures the degree of interconnectedness of the neurons in your brain. Now, the cerebrum uh, contains our sensory processing, our language and communication, our learning and memory. That's where all the, the real action is at for a human being. So this theory of ITT, or integrated information, uh, may prove to be effective, but only for the easy problem. The easy problem is to show which kinds of brain activity are correlated with consciousness. So it's, it's this one-to-one -one mapping of activity in your brain with what we would call consciousness, the things, the, the qualia, or my inner, inner experiences. The hard problem for consciousness is why this is the case, why certain brain states are correlated with consciousness. Indeed, explaining why we have psychophysical laws is outside of the game altogether. They just are. Of course, this isn't unusual. Uh, so, for example, Goff notes that Einstein says that mass curves space-time, which leads to gravity, is observed as bodies travelling the shortest difference, as uh, shortest distance through space-time. Uh, this is an expl explanation of why matter curves space-time. Simply a statement that it does, and that's what gives rise to the motion, which we traditionally called in Newtonian physics as a force. Think about having a rubber mat and a, a bowling ball on it, it makes the 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 um, the, uh, the mat sink, and so you've got curvature. And if you put a marble in, that would cause the marble to travel the shortest distance, which is towards the bowling ball. But we don't know why in um, uh, general relativity, space-time curves due to, to mass. It just does. 
And it's circular too. You define mass in terms of motion and curved space-time and curved space-time in reference to mass. So it doesn't explain the intrinsic qualities of, of uh, mass and space-time. We'll get back to that in a bit. Now, dualism, of course, raises the specter of religion. And this is where uh, Goff can, I think, trip up. And he certainly gets theological. So, for example, he reads the story of the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea as it stands as God interfering in the workings of nature. Now this, of course, implicitly assumes a deistic idea of God. God winds things up and exes off to another realm, puts his feet up and has a cup of tea, whatever. This doesn't look anything like Judaism and many versions of Christianity, or indeed animistic beliefs. But to stick to the theism I'm most familiar with, the world is created by and for God, and God dwells within creation without wholly being contained therein. So the language of intervention is problematic, not because I believe in a non-interventionist God, but because um, of how we define uh, any interaction of God with creation. And the describing it as intervening in any way different to the way in which we intervene in situations as being problematic. So if human beings can interview, intervene in affairs like go to rescue a drowning puppy or a kitten up a tree or whatever the, the heck, why can't we allow God to do the same thing? And this is where I think open theism can be helpful. Limiting God to what Goff calls, quote, anomalous events, again, falls into this deistic thinking. Interactions will be far more common if we abandon the idea of intervention as unlawlike tinkering. That said, of course, the detection of genuine anomalous events relies upon anecdotal evidence, and this is hard to capture, certainly in science. It will be the things that will be observed so rarely um, as, to, as to cause issues. And I accept that this is a problem, but maybe just maybe divine action is far more frequent and far more subtle uh, than we might give credit to uh, to God. So coming back to consciousness, consciousness then, a non-physical mind would, according to Goff, appear as an anomalous event. And he suggests we just don't see them. Further, if we apply Occam's razor, notwithstanding the fact, remember, that this is a philosophical tool and not a scientific one, it just seems to work, uh, then we can simply do away with dualism. Now, nothing says that Occam's razor needs to be true, that reality needs to be simple, it just often appears to be the case. Does the same obtain for theism? Does God violate simplicity? Now, I'm not convinced it's a precise match, uh, unless... Uh, we want to argue that God is the mind or soul of the universe, uh, and I kind of sort of do a bit later, as we'll see, um, rather than actually God's a separate being who interacts with the universe. Uh, the comparison doesn't really hold, I think, um, even though the, if you want to say the two forms of dualism, um, and that gets to what is God made of too, in a sense, but that's too far for us to go in this program. So perhaps open theism is true and divine interaction is subtle and respects creaturely freedom in achieving divine ends. Can we then therefore say with um, theoretical physicist and Anglican minister and theologian, the late John Polkinghorne, that God can input information into the system in a, in a way that doesn't always or even ever, although I don't think you can say that, uh, appear non-anomalous. The resurrection of Jesus, for example, would be one case. Moving on then to materialism, so that's uh, 
You've got dualism that says mind and, and body are different, mind and matter are different. Then you've got materialism, which says that our inner experiences are to be explained by the chemistry of the brain. Given this is the realm of science, Goff goes to great length to show that philosophy can still have a role. Galileo, for example, showed using the law of non-contradiction, which is a philosophical principle that contra Aristotle, objects of different masses fall at the same rate something that's finally been shown on the moon to be the case, but also there's um, a Brian Cox uh, documentary where they do it in this huge vacuum chamber, show exactly the same thing. Uh, that, and perhaps the, the, the scientist's use of Occam's razor um, all the time should silence scientists who constantly make the philosophical claim that philosoph philosophy is dead, such as uh, Polkinghorne, uh, not Polkinghorne, um, the late Stephen Hawking made. And indeed, they, they make similar theological claims. Um, the rest of chapter three is a presentation of various philosophical arguments against materialism. I can't possibly hope to do justice to all of them. There's the knowledge argument, um, which is an extension of what's known as black and white Mary, the black and white Mary thought experiment. So imagine a woman who lives in a room where everything is black, white and shades of gray. Mary has never seen color. Uh, but assume that materialism is true. Also assume Mary knows everything physical science can tell us about color experiences. Clearly, this involves neuroscience. Uh, but Goff argues that any such theory will be incomplete. And he gives the argument on pages 73 to 74, and I'll read those to you in the second half of the program. Well, welcome back. Um, we've been looking at Philip Goss' book, Galileo's Error, Foundations for a New Science of Consciousness and Conscious of Time. I want to dip just a little bit into his arguments against materialism. So the knowledge argument. So remember, it's Mary in her room. Uh, it's black and white and shades of grey. And he argues, firstly, that if materialism is true, that is, if my brain states, my consciousness are the same, uh, then Mary in her black and white room uh, can have a complete and final theory of colour experience by understanding the neuroscience thereof. Uh, if Mary in her black and white room has a complete and final theory of colour experience, then it shouldn't be possible for her to learn about some new essential feature of colour experience. And yet if Mary leaves her room, she does come to learn about new essential features of color experiences. She learns about what it's like to have color experiences. She sees color. So leaves this black and white and gray room, goes outside, sees color for the first time and goes, wow, and has an experience of it. Therefore, Mary in her black and white room can't have a complete and final theory of color experiences and materialism is false. Because this external knowledge doesn't get to the internal nature or experience of what it means. Um, which is which is a fascinating thought. Um, the other argument, uh, and again, I'm not doing it at any um, 
any justice is just, uh, and I like this argument, is what's um, the argument for the logical possibility of zombies. And he's not talking about the sorts of zombies that you see in The Walking Dead or whatnot. Um, but they're philosophical, possible, logically possible zombies, not actual zombies or conceivable zombies, but logically possible ones. So if zombies were logically impossible, I'd be able to prove that Susan is not a zombie. I cannot prove that Susan is not a zombie. Therefore, zombies are logically possible. And if that's the case, here they get someone to talk about um, what's known as the zombie argument. If materialism is true, then feelings are identical with brain states. If feelings are identical with brain states, then it is not logically possible for feelings to exist without brain states or vice versa. And this is, follows from what he calls the identity principle. If zombies are logically possible, then it is logically possible for brain states to exist without feelings. Therefore, if zombies are logically possible, materialism is false. Zombies are logically possible, as demonstrated uh, as I did a minute ago. Therefore, materialism is false. Now, make of that what you will, but there's, there's a more fundamental, I guess, feeling in your gut that I know that I'm conscious uh, and I know I'm not a zombie because I know I'm conscious. Uh, so how do I explain my consciousness purely in terms of um, a reductionistic view? And really the end of uh, the rest of this chapter is providing a nuancing of these kinds of arguments. But more interestingly, for the sake of the program, let's look at what he defines as panpsychism. So flicking through to page 113. So just for brevity of time, I'm going to, to the book. So panpsychism is the view that consciousness is a fundamental and ubiquitous feature of physical reality. It's, it's, there's a, if you like, a law of consciousness is there's a law of gravity. This view is much misunderstood. Drawing on the literal meaning of the term, pan is everything and psyche is mind, it is commonly supposed that panpsychists believe that all kinds of inanimate objects have rich conscious lives, that your socks, for example, may currently be going through a troubling period of existential angst. And mine certainly are because of the smell of my feet. Uh, panpsychists tend not to think that literally everything is conscious. However, they believe that the fundamental constituents of the physical world are conscious, but they need not believe that every random arrangement of conscious particles results in something that is conscious in its own right. And more importantly, panpsychists do not believe that consciousness like ours is everywhere because we're the product of million years of evolution. So your socks are not conscious. Uh, you are. And um, yeah, it's it not everything has the same level of consciousness as you do, but they do ascribe to even fundamental particles some kind of experience of the universe. Um, page 115. What's the advantage of this? Well, panpsychism avoids the problem of dualism because it does not postulate consciousness outside of the physical world. And so in that sense, it's, it's like materialism. The panpsychist places human consciousness exactly where the materialist places it in the brain. And because it's not trying to explain consciousness in terms of non-conscious brain processes, panpsychism also avoids the problem of materialism. 
rather than trying to account for consciousness in terms of non-consciousness, the panpsychist aspires to explain the complex consciousness of humans and animal brains in terms of simple forms of consciousness, simple forms of consciousness that are postulated to exist as fundamental aspects of matter. Matter experiences or exhibits some form of consciousness, and somehow you have to get from that upwards to, um, to brains like ours. So how is that done? Well, there is uh, what is called the, the problem of intrinsic natures. Physical science restricts itself to providing information about the behavior of the things it talks about, particles, fields, space-time, and tells us nothing about their intrinsic natures. And I touched upon that a bit earlier when I was talking about um, Einstein and gravity. So it, uh, Einsteinian general relativity tells you about the relationship between matter and the curvature of space-time. It doesn't tell you why, and it tells you nothing intrinsic about, about matter. To put it another way, in referencing Stephen Hawking in his A Brief History of Time, Hawking writes that even if there were one, only one possible unified theory, it talks about a unified theory of, of nature, it is just a set of rules and equations. What is it that breeds fire into the equations and makes a universe for them to describe? So, according to Goff, the equations of physics allow us to predict the behavior of matter with great precision, but it is the intrinsic nature of matter that breathes fire into those equations. And on this topic, physics has nothing to say. That again is the problem uh, of Galileo. So then, uh, where does panpsychism come in, in in all of this? Well, flicking on to page 132, he says the following. The problem of intrinsic natures physics tells us which is physics tells us nothing of the intrinsic nature of matter and then the brilliant insight of arthur eddington building on um, the philosopher russell was to solve uh, both of these problems at once or the problem of intrinsic nature um, and the problem of consciousness that is so problem one we need a place for consciousness problem two we have a huge hole at the center of our scientific story. That is to include consciousness. Solution, plug the hole with consciousness. In other words, make consciousness something that's fundamental about the nature of the world. Um, and skipping forward, there are two points that does that. Well, the first is that physical science tells us absolutely nothing about the intrinsic nature of matter and... The only thing we know about the intrinsic nature of matter is that some of it, that is, the matter inside our brains, has an intrinsic nature made up of forms of consciousness. So if you make consciousness something fundamental about the nature of the universe, then you solve the problem in the sense is that um, you get down to the bottom of explanation and consciousness just is. And to be fair, that is the case with science. So, for example, and I've seen Goff talk about this in tweets, um, people turn to the multiverse, the idea that there are an infinite number of universes, and statistically it's likely that you'll get one just like ours. In fact, you get infinite number of those. Or you have God. But you just either get to uh, an eternally existing multiverse or a, a necessary being. They're, if you like, fundamental 
assumptions about the way in which you see the world and you can't get past those that's the bedrock and so he's talking about consciousness as exactly the same thing consciousness is a fundamental aspect of the universe and it's worth stressing of course that when he, t he talks about this again it's a non-dualistic uh, uh, view of the universe it just makes consciousness fundamental there is and we're fast running out of time something known as the um the combination problem which is how do you get from individual consciousnesses of the the neurons of your brain to the conscious you and there's two views of that and, and one is um a kind of a reductionistic materialistic kind of approach that's not precisely the doing it justice i'll just find the relevant page um where are we Page 144 is not quite where he gets it. And the other one is the solution that I prefer, which is uh, an idea of emergent, emergism, emergentism, which is basically the whole is greater than the sum of the parts type thing. So there's, there's two ways of getting at this. In fact, he, he puts it this way on page 164. Um, let me read it to you. Some panpsychists, we call them emergentists, reject the assumption of micro-reductionism. On this approach to panpsychism, conscious systems in brains are, like entangled systems, and he talks about quantum entanglement earlier, more than the sum of their parts. The emergentist panpsychist tries to solve the combination problem, not by trying to make sense of how lots of little conscious entities somehow add up to a big consciousness, but rather by trying to discover the basic principles of nature which give rise to emergent wholes, that is to say, complex systems that are more than the sum of their parts. So again, this whole idea of emergent wholes or emergentism makes it again something that's fundamental to the nature of the problem. You make emergent emergism or emergentism fundamental. And in fact, of course, um, I've, I've alluded to this in a number of other programs, Stuart Kaufman in his book, Reinventing the Sacred, says that the universe contains this creativity, which is when you put simple things together, the resultant whole is far more complex. And I think that touches upon uh, this. So uh, to put it tersely, as he does on page 174, panpsychist methodology of this, what he calls a post-Galilean manifesto, which is to say that the universe is more than just about things you can study with maths, if you remember, we should aim to account for human and animal consciousness in terms of more basic forms of consciousness, basic forms of consciousness that are postulated to exist as basic properties of matter. Uh, and then the emergentist panpsychists uh, formulate and test theories of the basic principles of nature underlying the emergence of higher forms, high level forms of consciousness from those most uh, more basic forms of consciousness. That's a bit of a mouthful. But it's the idea that, there's a, the, that there'll be some kind of basic theory that says you put simple forms of consciousness together and what you get is not just a, a basic sum of those things, but it, it's something that's greater. Now, that's all too brief uh, a path through his theory of panpsychism, but it's simply at the end of it that if you're having problems uh, describing consciousness, which we know is, is fundamental to our existence, our being, using a Galilean framework, that the only things that you can study are, are quantitative, then maybe you're missing something about the fundamental nature of, of the intrinsic nature of matter. Uh, 
what gives fire to the equations, if you will, to use um, or to harken back to Hawking. Now, why is this important to um, to Goff? Well, obviously, other than providing a, a theory of why it is that we're conscious, on page 188, he talks about, uh, after an extended discussion of climate change, um, he, he notes that um, writer and climate change campaigner Naomi Klein places the blame uh, for things like climate change and the climate catastrophe at the foot of mind-body dualism, or as she puts it, quote, uh, the corrosive separation between mind and body and between body and earth from which both the scientific revolution and the industrial revolution sprang. The dualist, uh, this is now Goff, conceives of the natural world as a mechanism lacking in the consciousness that sanctifies human existence. It is therefore something to be exploited rather than uh, revered. In particular, Klein blames the scientist and philosopher Francis Bacon for, quote, convincing Britain's elites to abandon once and for all pagan notions of the earth as a life-giving mother to whom we owe respect and reverence, and more than a little fear and accept the role of her dungeon master. End quote. And I should add, I think, my study of the Hebrew Bible um, points in that same direction. So dualism has separated us from nature, or for Christian, the rest of, of the creation has set it too far above uh, and has given us very little regard of it. But I don't think that's the only way to read Genesis or Leviticus for those who've listened to the program before. To to finish briefly then about how we might go about linking that to a theistic belief, um, we go back to the idea of the fire and the equations. Why is consciousness fundamental? Why don't we live in a zombie universe? Well, Catholic theologian T.E. Oakes talks about the mental air. Now, what does he mean by this? So think about the different forms of flight and the different shapes of bird's wings and the designs, etc. Clearly, the formation of the bird's wing is influenced by air and the properties of air, the density of the air and so on, so that birds can effectively fly through it. They're, they're aerodynamically stable. Think about fish and they swim through water or even... Uh, say, the convergent evolution of the features of a shark's body and that of a dolphin. Now, they swim differently, but they have similar forms. Why? Because it's shaped by the, the features of water. So what if consciousness is, is formed and shaped and drawn forward by a mental air? Paul Tillich talks about uh, God as the ground of all being. But what if God is, in fact, the ground of all awareness as well? So you posit a fundamental mind um, in which, if you like, the universe is made in the divine image because it is fundamentally conscious. And so you get away from a theological perspective of simply thinking as human beings as solely the image of God, but see somehow the entire of creation reflecting divine mind. Take uh, what you will with that. And I think that's compatible with the open theism and relational theism that I'm reading um, in um, the writings of Tom Ord and the fact that God relates to the universe on that kind of that subtle um, basis leading it forward and, and with the, the universe having freedom because it is at its fundamental level conscious in some form and Tom Ord talks about that in a book I reviewed a little while ago so 
it's it's a fascinating book. I've not done its justice in the time. In fact, we've probably spent more time um, covering what Goff doesn't believe than what he does espouse in terms of panpsychism. But I think it's a fruitful way forward, both as um, a way of steering our, our studies into consciousness, but also I think where where theists, where Christians can get their hands dirty and, and think more about the nature of God and God's relationship to the creation, but also uh, how we should be relating, as, as Goff rightly points, undoing that knot that is dualism and the way in which we've separated ourselves and, and cheated, uh, treated nature as a cheap resource. Anyway, that's enough for now. Once more, thank you for listening, and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players, and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.